Well, I'm glad you're here today. Um, it has been a week of wide-ranging emotions. Some of you have walked with us through that. Some of you are hearing about it for the first time today. Um, and, you know, when you're writing a sermon <laughs> um, ahead of that, uh, sometimes you write it five different ways, and you're like, no, that's not the mood. That's not the right tone. That's not what God's people need to hear. And I think the only thing I came away certain of is that I just cannot remember a sermon that I was preparing for that I was more excited to bring than the one that God has for us today. Um, God knew weeks ago when Pastor Jeremy asked me to preach this week that we'd be burying our brother Hunter this past week. God knew we didn't. He knew Jeremy would need to love on a family. He knew that he'd need to prepare a funeral sermon and that God would be using our partnership in that way to make that possible. God knew many months ago when Jeremy was planning the preaching calendar that this week we'd be in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, which is where we're going to be today. And it deals with planning the week after all our plans were changed. None of us expected to be at a funeral on Thursday, but God knew. We all made plans for our days and our weeks, and I believe our brother Hunter had plans for his life too, but none of us were right. But we're here this week after a major plan change was made by God in all of our lives and God has us in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 to talk about planning. This is the best example I can think of of why we're committed to what Pastor Jeremy calls expositional preaching. Preaching verse by verse through large chunks of the scripture, book by book, taking it through. And I know that Pastor Jeremy creates a sermon calendar, and God honors that by bringing the right word to the right audience at the right time. And he's done that for us today. So if you've ever paid attention to a sermon before, this one deserves it, not because I'm the one giving it, but because I have no doubt that God has this text for this audience on this day. So let's, let's look at it with eagerness. And, and again, it's about planning. And so as we get into this, I want us to think about how much of our life is affected by plans. We make long-term plans. Some of us have signed mortgages for 30 years. It's a long-term plan. Every month you pay that mortgage, you are executing one little bit of that long-term plan. But, but then there's saving for retirement. That's a long-term plan. 401ks. My company that I work for issued us 401ks a few years back. And when I went to sign up for it, the way they wanted you to pick your fund was based on your retirement year. And it offered me, based on their math, retirement year of 2050. And I was like, 2050, I started doing the math. How old will I be? I got to numbers that were too high for me to count, carried the one, lost count. That's a long time in the future. So we make long-term plans. We make long-term plans about college, about career, about marriage, about kids. Hopefully, when you make plans about church, those are long-term plans. But we make shorter-term plans too, don't we? We buy cars on shorter terms. Sometimes we lease them three years at a time. We do that sort of thing. We plan for vacations, we plan for big purchases, we plan our evenings and our weekends, but then there's those other types of plans we have, that thing called a routine, right? Well, I have routines, and I, I live and die by routines. My morning routine ideally would look like this, get up, get some coffee, have some time with the Lord in the Word, and then at about 6.25, be ready to turn my focus to helping the kids get up, and, and I say this like I'm the only one doing it, me and my wife, Grace working together to get the kids up, get them ready, get them fed, get them shooed, 
and out the door by 7.15 or 7.20 to go to school. We have five kids, for those who don't know, so it's a process for us. And by about 7.15, 7.20, if all is going well, we're on our way to school, and if all goes well, I have time to get them to school, get back, get a run in, get a shower in, and be at the desk about 9, 9.15. That's, a, that's an ideal routine for us. Well, let me tell you about a day where the routine didn't go as planned. The routine began well, about 6.25, I'd read the word, halfway through a cup of coffee, going well. Kids get ready, they're shooed, they're in the truck, we're on our way to school, and it's on the way to school, we come up to a bridge we normally cross that goes over the intercoastal waterway on 544, and we're getting close to it, and the traffic is getting dense, and the closer we get and the later we get, I realize it's not just like a blocked lane or anything, the entire bridge is closed. And they're diverting everybody to this really obscure one-lane detour, and I knew it was going to take forever. So I did a U-turn, found a different way to get them to school, got them to school. They were barely on time, but I knew at that moment I was not going to have time for a run. So the big commitment I had, I knew I had to surrender. Now, for me, it was just, you know, something I needed to do. I wasn't thinking deeply about it, but little did I know I had a brother with a burden who needed to talk. And the time that I surrendered my run to, God repurposed for a conversation with my brother. And if I had not already surrendered the run, I wouldn't have had the ability to give him the unhurried attention that he deserved in that conversation. And then furthermore, when the conversation ended, there was a few minutes left for me to pray for my brother. God was doing that. Now, does that mean my plan, my routine wasn't godly? No, it's not my idea to run. It's not lost on me that that's what I got out of that day, but I run because I know that that's, for me at least, the best way for me to maintain my health and, you know, be a good steward of my body. So it's a godly plan, but sometimes our godly plans need to have room for godly interventions, and that's what happened on that day. Here's the bottom line. God knew something I did not know, so he changed my plans to serve his purposes, and this is what we're going to see as we look at James chapter 4. So if you've got your, your Bible, whether it's digital or physical, we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 today, and I want to summarize the sermon in one sentence, and if I were to do it that way, this is what it would be. Real-life planning humbly surrenders to God's righteous will. Real-life planning humbly surrenders to God's righteous will. Today we're going to explore in James 4 how we can replace our self-centered planning strategies with planning that's humble, planning that's surrendered and is righteous in its aims. And so we're going to look at God's word beginning in verse 13. And what we're going to see, first of all, is humble planning. Let me read to you what it says here. It says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What's James doing here? James is giving us a sample plan. You who say you're going to go do this for such and such a time and you're going to have such and such an outcome. James, if you've been with us, you know he's not like a massage artist. James is more like a dentist, okay? He's going to come in. He's going to scratch your teeth. He's going to tell you what you've been doing wrong in your brushing routine. He's going to charge you for it, and he's going to make you like it, okay? <laughs> and so we're bracing here. He's given this a sample plan, and we probably can expect that James is about to tell us all the things that are wrong with this plan. You'd be right with that instinct, by the way, but let's look at it with our own eyes before we go further. What do we see in this plan? We see a plan that makes assumptions about the future. We see a plan that is very specific about what the planner is going to do. And we see a plan where making a profit, making money, is 
It's the end of the story. It's the point. It's not the beginning of the story. What are you going to do with that money? How will it be used? There's no moral mandate here. So even with our own eyes, we can see some things about this plan that might not be ideal. But what is Uh, What does this look like? Well, before we see what James says, let's see what Jesus said about a plan like this. Luke chapter 12, verse 16, he said this. It'll be on the screen. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat. Drink, be merry. By the way, if you start talking to yourself in the third person, that's, that's when we, we have a problem. <laughs> but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Then Jesus finishes this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What do these two plans have in common? A lot of things, but at least one thing they have in common is that they're missing humility. There's no humility in these plans. So if we think about humble planning, what are we talking about? Well, we need to understand what humility is. And I like to make definitions on words and go look at the dictionaries and all of this and kind of think about it in terms of what we need to hear today. But my definition of humility would just simply be being honest about our limitations and thinking and acting accordingly. The Bible has definitions, and the Bible paints us a picture. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it's on the screen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you ever want a picture of humility, there's no better than what we just read. That's a picture of humility. What what do we see in Jesus' example? We see a couple things. He's more concerned about the will of the Father than his own brand. And secondly, he's more concerned about his mission than his reputation. This is humility defined by Jesus. But what does it look like in our lives, right? A couple of really good places for us to exercise humility would be in success and in failure. When we have humility and success, what does it look like? Well, primarily it looks like gratitude. Okay, we realize that our success was not earned on our own. We recognize the efforts of others and the grace of God in our success. That's what humility looks like in success. It's gratitude, but it looks like accountability in failure, where we realize that there's an urge to blame others for our failure, and we resist that urge. And we take accountable, we take responsibility for our own role in our failure. Humility looks like that in both of those places. But humility also needs to be infused into our planning. That's the whole point of James bringing it up here. And what we need to understand is humility is not a character trait that's passive. It's an intentional act that we basically come from an awareness of truth and the conviction that to act on that truth is is a must. And that truth as applied to our planning, we start to see in verse 14. Let's look at verse 14. What does James say? He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's this first major thing James is saying to us that helps us bring humility into our planning? He's basically telling us, you don't know the future. You don't know the future. And James says it verbatim right there, and it echoes Proverbs 27, verse 1, which tells us not to boast about tomorrow, 
for you do not know what a day may bring. This is obviously true, right? We don't know tomorrow. But how many of us plan like we don't know tomorrow? You know, we can get away with it most of the time to make a plan and to declare, I'm going to do this tomorrow, and it's going to have this outcome, and then we go do it, and more or less we get what we thought we were going to get out of it. But the reality is, even when it goes well, that's not a wise way to plan because sometimes it doesn't go well. And watch out the frustration, the anger, the disappointment that comes when we plan like we know what's going to happen, and then, of course, we find out we didn't know all along. Planning like you don't know, planning like you know what you don't know is not a good plan, if I can say it that way. And you can look at this a couple of ways, right? You can say, I, I, I need to plan like I know what's going to happen tomorrow because if I don't, that's, that's not a safe space for me to be in. That's going to raise up my anxiety. But let me, let me give you another thought on that. What if you're anxious because you're trying to live like you know what's going to happen tomorrow. What if that's what's fueling your anxiety? That's not my idea. That was Jesus' idea. He said it in Matthew 6, 34, not on the screen. He said, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its trouble. How many of you can say amen to sufficient for the day is its trouble? I have enough trouble today. I'm not going to be anxious for tomorrow. So you don't know the future. And planning like you do, it doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. And so as we look at what James is teaching us here, he's letting us know you need to understand you don't know the future. But he gives us another piece of advice right there in verse 14. He says, not only do you not know the future, but you're not in control. You are not in control. Looking at verse 14 again, he compares our lives to a mist. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist or a thin vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. My, how timely this truth is for us who have had the privilege to honor the life of our brother. There are two ways to understand this illustration that James gives about a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes. If you think about it, this vapor, this mist, it's, what is it? It's literally created by a chemical reaction where water molecules are reacting to the movement of air and temperature, okay? And if you're a scientist and you know better than me, I'll take your correction. What's the point I'm really trying to make? There are outside forces that create mist, and it has no control whatsoever over its existence or what it's there to do. You see, at its stablest, vapor creates clouds that are tied to things like thunderstorms, but it can be as... as transactional and disappear as quickly as your breath on a cold day. James says that's your life. And what we need to grapple with here is that we are not in control. Like mist, we have not the ability to control even our own existence, much less our plans. So we need to believe that and come into a settled conviction that we are not in control. But that same illustration there in verse 14 there's a second truth in that that we need to understand in that it's not about you. It's not just that the vapor has no control over its existence, but that it's here today, gone tomorrow, or here in a moment, gone in the next. James is letting you know that your great-great-grandchildren, if you're blessed enough to have them, probably won't know your name. That's what he's letting us know. And I know this isn't pleasant. I'm not really a mean person. 
but it's true. And there are a lot of ways we could understand this and communicate it, but I think the most passionate way to think about this is to say it's not about you. It's not about you. But that's a challenge for us to believe, isn't it? The air we breathe, right? Social media and the celebrity cult. This is what we have all around us. And what does it all tell us? It's all about you. If you make it all about you, there's money, there's power, there's influence that you can have. And so because of that, it's a challenge for us to believe. But honestly, we can also be tempted to believe that these truths, again, are are, are unnerving, that they're unpleasant, that we don't want to hear this. Don't tell me it's not about me. Don't tell me I'm not in control. Don't tell me I don't know the future. I don't want to think about that. And we can take it as an unpleasant reality, or we can see it as the greatest of relief. While I don't know or control the future, God does. And while it's not about me, it's all about him. We can take the attitude of Joseph. Joseph, not Joseph and Mary, right? But Joseph of the coat of many colors. Joseph himself, who had been hated by his brothers so much that they sold him into slavery. That was a bad day. And then further, in slavery, he was accused of a crime he didn't commit and thrown into prison. He was then forgotten in prison. But then eventually there was a point at which he was elevated to the second in command in all of Egypt. Why? Because he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh put him there so that he would take advantage of seven years of plenty in the crops to make sure they saved up for the seven years of famine. And what ended up happening is he was so successful at executing on his mission that they had not only enough food for Egypt, but for all of essentially North Africa and the Middle East. So everybody was coming to Egypt to get food, and that included the brothers that hated him. And when he saw them, Joseph had two choices. He could have stuck it to him or he could have done what he did, but it clicked in his mind. It's not about me. I didn't know why God let me go through all those horrible things. I certainly wasn't in control, but it wasn't about me. He said this in Genesis 50. He said, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And you and I have a stake in that, because the people that were kept alive weren't just any people. They were the family line through which the Savior would one day come. And God had a gospel purpose in taking Joseph through all those difficult times. And because of that, when we believe that we don't know the future, when we believe that we're not in control, when we believe that it is not about us, that can be a great relief. It can be a, uh, a calm for our anxieties. And while it's not about me, it is about him and his purposes. And he is worthy then of our trust and our surrender. So it follows that we don't need to just have humble planning. We also need to have surrendered planning. We get into this in verse 15, and we want to know what we, you know, we know what surrender means in the context of war, maybe in crime, you know, when the bad guy surrenders to the police or the, the, the army that's beaten surrenders to the army that wins. But what does surrender have to do with our plans? And verse 15 tells us this, if we can read this together. It says, instead, right, so we're getting a different option for our plan. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is surrendered planning. Planning that submits every plan, no matter how mundane, to the will of God. Now, I want to give you some clarity concerning 
this because some of you in here are at different ages and stages. We've got a great group of college students that are here uh, that are part of our church. We have young people all over the audience that are in various parts of their education, and many of you love the Lord, and you're really eager to do God's will for your life. But what it looks like to you might be a series of checkboxes, of blanks that need to be filled in. What is God's will for my college? What's his will for my career? What's his will for my spouse? What's his will for my location in the future? And we're really eager to know and execute and do God's will. James 4.15 is not exclusively about that, but I cannot help but take the opportunity to sit on that and give you a little bit of advice from my own life and from God's word about how you can navigate this time in your life. And hopefully it'll be helpful to some. So there's really four settled convictions that I want you to have as you're thinking about God's will for your life. And the first one is this. God is already working his plan in your life. He is not waiting for you to know what he's trying to do in your life. He is already working his plan. Another way to say that is he is there and he is not silent. That's the title of a book Francis Schaeffer wrote that honestly, everyone should read. The goal of that book is to use the active working of God in the world as an apologetic, as a proof of God's existence. But for those of us who are wondering Where is God? What is he doing? When will he act in my life? We can be comforted by the fact that he already is. He's already working his plan in your life. Proverbs 19, 21 says it this way. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And if you want proof, think about the fact that even your salvation was planned ahead for you. Ephesians 1, 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God is already working out his plan in your life. He's on the case. He's doing it. There's a second conviction you need to have, is that his plan is best for you. Some of you know God, and you already know this, but some of you are hearing this for the first time. You're like, not really on speaking terms with God yet. Don't know him. He's already working a plan out in my life. That scares me a little bit. What's he going to put me through? How is he going to take me through this world? And I want to give you some hope. The best proof, in my opinion, uh, that God's plan is best for you is captured by Paul in Romans 8.32. Look at what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you want proof that God's plan is best for you, look at the gospel. His plan through the ages of time to bring about his son, born of a woman, to live a perfect life, die the death that we deserved, and raise again to bring us eternal life. God was planning that for us. And Paul basically says, if he would do that for you, what are you worrying about? Food and shelter and clothing. God has a plan for you. Jesus spoke on this too when he said in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those things he was talking about are the things that bring us anxiety. Where am I going to get my next paycheck? Where am I going to get the money to pay my bills? Where am I going to get food, shelter, clothing, companionship? He's talking about the practical things. 
And so believing that God's plan is best for you, is critical for you if you're, if you're truly on the hunt for what God has to, to say about his will for your life. But there's a third thing you need to understand about that, and it's that most of what you need to know about God's will is found in the scriptures. The scriptures tell us most of what we need to know about God's will. And you might be sitting there saying, can you um, narrow it down a bit? The scriptures? I've looked at that book. It's the fattest book on my shelf. There's a lot of words in it, a lot of stories. There's things I don't understand. I need, oh, about 65 years to master that book and to understand what it says, and my window will be closed by then. So this may come off as unsettling to some of you, and if it does, I just want to walk you through what I mean by this. The biblical proof is in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's God's word. If it says it, it's true. I know this isn't rocket science I'm bringing you here today, but if that's the case, then what we need to do is take seriously that God's will can be found in God's word. So how do we actually operate in that? I want to give you a piece of advice I just heard this Friday listening to Albert Moeller answer questions on the briefing from young people. And this is what Albert Moeller told a young man. He's a theology student. He took his first theology class, and it scared him to death because he came away realizing how much he needed to know from the Bible so that he could serve God's church as a pastor. And I thought, that sounds like a familiar fear, right, Jeremy? How much do we need to know? And the question was, what do I got to do to master the scriptures so I can serve the church? And Moeller said this, Albert Moeller, he said, it's not you that masters the scriptures. It's the scriptures that master you. When you're reading the word of God, it's not so much what you're taking in and, and cataloging and remembering. And it's what God's doing to your heart through those scriptures. So what do you do? You dive in. You make it your number one academic pursuit. You meditate on it. You spend large chunks of time and memorize large chunks of scripture. And, 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 and this is extreme, Alan, um, this is what the really dedicated ones are going to do. No, this is what every Christian needs to do. We need to step it up. I'm not just talking to young people here. Because the next thing young people need to do if they want to get as much as they can out of Scripture is not just dive into it for themselves, but live it out practically in the context of your local church. How do you do that? Get to know people that are older than you. Serve them. Be served by them. One of the things we have is a church that is multi-generational. And that is a treasure. And the reason that's a treasure is because we all have walked different links of this path in life. And some of our younger folks need the wisdom from some of our younger folks. Where'd that wisdom come from? It came from God's word. And they're going to see God's word practically applied in our lives so that we then can basically bring them the, the effect that God's words had on us from a different perspective. And so God's word is where most of what you need to know. Now, your, your, your future spouse's name is not in there. Your future address, the title of your job. I didn't see the words Coastal Carolina University anywhere in there together. But what I'm saying is the things you need to know to get you there are in God's word. Fourth thing, and I'll get off of this little topic. God doesn't always reveal his will before it happens. Young people used to come to Elizabeth Elliot, a famous missionary uh, whose husband died uh, doing the work of God, and she had a prolific writing and speaking career. And 
they would ask her, what, how do I find God's will for my life? And, and this was her advice. She would say, do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Because God doesn't always reveal his will to you the way you think he's going to or before it actually happens. And that's hard for us to really understand. But if we believe God's already working his plan, that his plan is best for us, that it's the scriptures that are going to master us and get us where we need to go, then this shouldn't be too hard for us to believe. Do the next right thing. And for some of us, the next right thing, you know what it might be? Put the video game controller down, put the phone down, get to bed at a decent hour, wake up early enough to get some breakfast and some word time before you go to class. That may be the next right thing. It's going to be something simple and practical like that. The next right thing is to make sure you're embedded in a local church and you're getting to know the people of the local church, that multiple generations, and you're investing in them as they invest in you. By the way, you guys are doing a good job of that. Keep it up. I just want to let you know you're doing a good job of that. Keep it up. And so this is what we need, the equipment we need to navigate God's will. And, and again, you may think, man, that's not satisfying. I thought you were going to give me a blueprint, a plan. Is it LeBron James that says, trust the process? That's what we need to do. Trust the process. Because at the end of the day, that's surrendered planning. It's not your idea of planning. It's God's idea of planning. And many of us can be tempted to be paralyzed in our planning. But again, God is walking with you. And if you do the next right thing, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be finding yourself in the midst of God's will in ways you never could have thought of. And I can testify to that. Would love to sit down and have a good long talk with you if, you, if you're game for it. But this is the way God works in this way. And if we're going to look at God's will beyond this idea, there are two ways to look at it. It's God's will as a contingency hanging over our plans, right? We're going to do this if God allows it to happen. And it's God's will as a moral mandate. What does God permit? What does God's character say about what should happen? And that's why we can't just stop at humble and um, surrendered planning. It needs to be righteous planning. Righteous planning. We're going to see this in verses 16 and 17. So verse 16, we can't continue, right? So he's given us a plan. He's told us what's wrong with it. He's given us a new way to plan. And now he says this, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. I lost my place. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What is he saying? Does God really care about my plans? Does he care what church I go to? Does he care what grocery store I choose to shop at? Does he care whether or not I get up at 6 or 6.15 in the morning? And the answer is God cares about everything. Here's something to think about. Our plans are not morally neutral. And James is telling us that here in verse 16. He gives us some moral language. He talks about arrogance and boasting. What is this? Arrogance is a condition of the heart. Boasting is basically going public with that. And ultimately, James says that at the very least, a plan that does not consider God's will is an arrogant plan. And who can argue if we believe what's said in verse 14, that we don't know, that we're not in control, that it's not about us, if we then go and plan like all those things aren't true? So what else could it be but arrogant if we try to predict or control the future when we can't? It follows then that making those plans and verbalizing them is boasting. What is James saying? That this is more serious than we might think it ought to be. And so Proverbs 16, 18 applies. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty or arrogant spirit before a fall. Proverbs actually gives a name to this person. The scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. 
And it might help us to look at the company the scoffer keeps. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the seat of sinners, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The scoffer's hanging out with the wicked and the sinner. James doesn't mince word. He says all such boasting is evil. He agrees with the psalmist. He agrees with the Proverbs that godless planning, otherwise known as boasting and arrogance, is not just obnoxious. It's evil. And so this is a serious thing for us. There's moral language, but there's moral weight. Verse 17 continues. He says there, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. At the end of the day, James' position is this. Planning that humbly surrenders to God's righteous will isn't just better, it's right. It's the opposite of wrong. It's righteous planning. And if that's the case, and now we know that it's the right thing to do, we are responsible to do it. And if we do not fulfill that responsibility, we're sinning. This is a a theological category known as a sin of omission. When we think about sin, we think about sins of commission, acts that we perform. And James has already talked a lot about this in chapter 2 when he talks about showing your faith by your works, by action. And sins of omission are sins of non-action. To not act, if I can say it that way, is to thumb our nose at God's will for our life and for our plans. And you might say, what's the big deal? Why is that the case? Well, because non-action leads to action. That classic example of the Holocaust would have never happened if it wasn't for decades and decades of people looking over their shoulders, hearing ideas and saying, that doesn't sound right, and walking away. And then at the end of that, we have the worst war ever recorded in human history and six million Jews that die among tens of millions of people all over the world who die because of these ideas. Non-action leads to action. So much of our active sinning, I give into this temptation. Why? Because I failed to fill my time, my idleness, with work, with studying God's word, with doing what God's called me to do, the next right thing. I don't read my Bible. I don't put on the full armor of God. That's a sin of omission. And what do I do? I fall when the devil throws something at me because I'm not prepared. People actively avoid the church and they drop out because they didn't invest their time, their talents, and their treasure They didn't have any buy-in. So that sin of omission leads to a sin of commission. What am I saying? I think you get the idea. Planning that honors God, a godly plan with room for godly interventions, is an absolute must. And James here is telling us that we need a humble plan that surrenders to God's righteous will. So this morning, if you're a Christian, I, I think the call to action is obvious. How intentional are we about infusing humility and surrender and righteous aims in our planning? What sins of omission do you need to confess and forsake? Is it about your time? Is it about money? Is it about work? Is it about school? God's put something on your heart this morning if you're a Christian. Do not go away without making a commitment commitment to act where you have not chosen to act thus far. Make a godly plan with room for godly interventions. But some of you aren't necessarily ready to declare yourselves Christians. And you're looking at God at at the front door, and you're wondering, what's his plan for me? And I want to ask you, what's your plan for your hope, for your guilt? 
What's your plan for the shame you feel? What's your plan for the anxiety in you? Where do you plan to find redemption and hope and peace? What are your plans for eternity? It's not over when we breathe our last. One day you'll stand before your maker. What do you plan to say to him? This morning, God's will for you is to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, he lived the perfect life you couldn't live, and he wants to trade your record for his. Will you take that deal? When he died on the cross, he paid a debt you couldn't hope to pay, and he wants to trade his ledger for yours. Will you take that deal? When he rose bodily from the grave, he defeated the death that none of us will ever escape. And he wants to offer you the free gift of eternal life. Will you take that gift? This morning, the Bible says that if you answer yes to those questions and you call upon the name of the Lord and say, Jesus, I believe I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again and that it was all effective to offer me salvation. Will you be my Lord? Will you be my Savior? This morning, the Bible says, if you will call upon his name, you will be saved. He answers that prayer. That's his plan for your life this morning. So we're gonna have a care team come forward. And if you're a Christian and you need to work something out, if you're a non-Christian and you need to help navigate this desire to follow Christ, I wanna invite you to come forward as we sing. We have some people with servants' hearts who are ready to help, ready to serve. Don't hesitate. Come forward. Let's work this out together and allow God to get in front of our plans this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And we pray, God, that you would guide us as we respond. Thank you for all, all of the things you're doing in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.